Hello everybody, and how are you doing today? My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my book, Crucify My Love, book one in the Mask of the Gods series, or listening to the podcast version of it, which you can find at maskofthegods.com. You know, it's available on most podcast engines, apps, whatever we're supposed to call them now. Yeah. Hi. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning at the beginning of this episode that I might be a little bit spacey. I did not sleep well, and the coffee does nothing. It does nothing. So, having been locked away and isolated in my home, away from all contact with anyone who's not my doggy for the last day, and not sleeping hardly at all last night, and trying to have as much caffeine as possible so that I can do the things what need doing today. Yeah, this is what you're getting. So, have fun! Okay, so part of me wanted to take today to talk to you about the new Save the Cat 4. But I'm not going to do that today. I might do it tomorrow or next week. See, every time I play with it, I find more features... And I really think people need to be talking about it because I don't see people talking about it. And it's kind of the awesome. So if you have any questions about Save the Cat, either the Blake Snyder beat sheet or the apps, let me know. This is not sponsored by them in any way, shape, or form. Though if they would like to sponsor, I'll take it. I mean, I give you money. You can give me money. Anyway. Um... So, what I wanted to talk about instead is the mechanism by which we get a story stuck in our head. Because I don't think that this is something that is unique to writers, though most of the writers that I know do have this problem. I notice, well, this kind of is the root of all fandom is that a story gets in your head and it just keeps popping up and popping up and popping up and popping up and it won't go away. So what is it about these stories that we love that allows them to do this or makes it possible for them to do this? Well, I think it might actually be related to the same phenomenon that allows it to happen for music. See, at least as I understand it, and I apologize if... A more recent scientific study has disproven what I'm about to say, but as I understand it, one of the things that causes a song to get get stuck in your head is that a fragment of it starts playing and doesn't come to full resolution. And the brain, wanting that resolution, continues to play that bit of the song over and over and over and over again which is why sometimes listening to the song makes it go away because you have brought the song to the completion that your brain wanted and your brain will let go sometimes that doesn't help and just seems to seat 
that earworm in there deeper. But I think that's actually what happens with story as well. When you think about Star Wars, and I'm probably going to be talking about Star Wars a lot, because in many ways it kind of typifies much easier. It's much easier to see the things that I'm wanting to say in something like a Star Wars. Now, Bob Chipman just released a wonderful video about the subversive work of George Lucas in which he talks about exactly how subversive the original Star Wars was. And if you haven't seen that, I definitely recommend you go to YouTube and watch that video because it's really, really good. But one of the things that got me thinking about this topic is he points out exactly how weird that movie is. It starts with a crawl that expects that we already know what's going on, even though it's the first movie that got made. Which, by the way, even if you're coming into Star Wars now, that's still true. Episode 1 starts with a crawl that assumes you already know what's going on, even though it's now the first movie in the series. And then it just gets weirder. We meet two droids. We meet a guy in black robot samurai armor who apparently kills people. We follow two droids in their madcap adventures, one that only talks in beeps and boops. We start meeting aliens that are not speaking English and are not subtitled, so we have no idea what they're saying. And it's not until 15 minutes into the movie that we meet Luke Skywalker, who is, let's be honest, the first thing in the movie that looks like a main character. And when you actually go through the rest of the story for A New Hope, for episode four, you get to see exactly how weird it is. And I'm not trying to argue that it's its weirdness that helps it stick in our heads. It's its incompleteness that makes it stick in our heads. See, George Lucas was fascinated by the work of Akira Kurosawa. And Kurosawa believed that a world needed to feel lived in. So, for example, in his samurai films, he often... rarely, actually, sat you down and explained why the samurai do the things that they do. While he didn't expect you to necessarily know the rituals that they were performing and the reasons behind them, he felt that you could trust the audience to intuit why they were doing the things that they were doing because of the importance that they brought to the actions themselves. Now, this is where I could get off on a tangent and start talking about cinema verite and all that stuff, but I'm not going to do that. It's this very lived-in quality that causes these stories to persist in our mind. And when you think about it, the, the series that have the most um, compelled fandom the largest and most ravenous fandoms are often for stories that are incomplete, but have this lived in quality. We know 
in Firefly a bit about the war, but we don't really know who started it. We don't really know why it was fought. We have a few explanations given that are kind of contradictory, but we get the sense that these characters lived before the story that we picked up. We get the sense that they have a life between the episodes that we get to see, and that this is a much wider world with a lot more happening in it than we are privy to. The same is true with the original Star Trek and, to a certain degree, The Next Generation, where we get glimpses of the private lives of the various characters and hear about things that happened in between episodes, again, giving them this sense of being around for more than just the story that they're in. Now, backstory and continuity, these are not new things in fiction, and I'm not trying to say that they're the only necessary things. What I am trying to say is that it's this sense of the story having elements hidden from us, elements just out of view. And I think that's very important because, yeah, there are some people that are really into Cloverfield. J.J. Abrams' work really doesn't bring this about because you understand that the reason you don't know what you don't know is because J.J. has put it in, an, put it in a mystery box and he personally believes that the magic would be ruined, the spell would be broken if the mystery box ever gets opened. So we will never know the answers. And because we'll never know the answers, well, yes, there are people that really liked Lost and other J.J. Abrams pro you know, projects over the years. They don't have the same rabid fan base that a lot of other works do because we we kind of know that the mystery is the point of it and that we'll never get those answers. When it comes to a Star Trek or a Star Wars or a Alien, unfortunately, or Firefly, Serenity, whatever we want to call it, we have a sense that these are knowable things. Maybe they are knowable via deduction. So if we sit back and actually take the time to look at the evidence portrayed in the story, we can piece it together on our own. This has been one of the great joys of watching Steven Universe, as they've given us drips and drips and drips about the backstory and Rose Quartz and the war with the diamonds and everything. They give us the elements to start piecing the story together and make it be able to see exactly what the story was about. And because of its very incompleteness, because of that quality of it, the story themselves, the stories that we get to see being complete, while the world itself seems to have these open spaces in which we have some tantalizing information that could point to something, but might not, invite us to look into the story and to start theory crafting. But again, they're not enough. They have to have the same kind of elements that an earworm does. The story has to be catchy on some f level, meaning it's got some quality of surprise or 
innovation or just style and charm that attracts us and makes us want to have it in our lives in the first place. There has to be some magic in the story itself so that it can get into our noodle in the first place so it can get caught up in there. And think about it. The moments that you find yourself thinking about a lot are those little in-between moments. You know, what was actually going on when Morgoth was creating Glauron? I mean, I really want to know. What was he made from? Because we know that Morgoth did not have the ability to create life, because only Ilu, um, Eru Ilu, uh, I can't say words today, Eru Iluvatar does. So, it's not like the dragons were created out of nothing. There had to be something there beforehand, but the story doesn't tell us. Though, we do know that it took 400 years for Glauron to fully mature. Okay, so what does that mean? Why could people see the eyes of the Dark Lord staring out of him? Was Morgoth possessing the dragon? That doesn't really seem to make sense, because Glauron definitely seemed to have a mind of his own. And so on and so forth. There's enough there for somebody like me, who's really into dragons and fantasy and secondary worlds and epic histories and dark lords and all that. Okay, you've got the elements to make me interested. You have a really amazing character, like we're talking about here, and I don't know. You've given me gaps, because the book that I'm reading was written by people outside the castle. They weren't in the keep with Morgoth, so they didn't know what was happening inside. So, I don't get to know what happened inside. But the people inside there knew what was going on. So maybe there is a tome somewhere that would tell me. Now, of course, in reality, there isn't, because Tolkien didn't write one. And, of course, anybody who wrote one today would be writing elaborate fan fiction, even if they were corporately mandated to do so. Because we don't know what Tolkien's intentions were. But there's enough of a mystery there for that idea to get, you know, just stuck in there. Just to get caught, make you wonder, huh, what would the fourth age have looked like? We, we have some basic ideas of what he was going to do as a follow-up to Lord of the Rings, and it seems like a very interesting story, and the only reason he didn't do it is he felt that it cheapened the end of the Lord of the Rings itself. So the bigger question, at least I know that I find myself asking, is is there any way that we can intentionally bake that into our own fiction, or is it something that happens by happenstance? And unfortunately, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know the next phrase I'm going to say. First of all, all of this depends on that magical elf coming in in the middle of the night and sprinkling ruby dust all over us so that the story actually does catch the imagination with enough people to get a viable fandom going that will start discussing the story. And yes, a fandom begins with at least one person, and they can grow over time, and I'm not trying to 
sell any of that short. But before we talk about anything that follows, I think it's very important to bring up the just the simple fact that it, for this to happen to any of our fiction, there has to be a certain amount of ruby dust involved that's completely outside of our control. And so, you know, we can't rely on it happening because, well, we're not the ones that make it happen in the first place. Having said that, I think there are some things that we can do as writers to try to encourage this line of thinking when it comes to our work. And for me, I think you can take your tips here from um, Roland Barth, who, well, really believed that the intention of the author didn't matter and was part of the group of um, literary philosophers who pioneered the idea of the death of the author. But in so doing, I think he actually laid the groundwork for the techniques that a writer can use in order to open their world up for further speculation. And I'm not going to go through all of this in a lot of detail, just because it would probably take hours. And if you want more information, definitely ask, and I will go into much deeper detail in future episodes. So basically, what we're going to just kind of talk about in brief here are the five threads or codes or strands or any of the various other words that Barth used to describe this idea in his work. And so we start with the action code and the action code or the um, proretic code um, builds the tension of action events and behaviors. So this is what the characters do. This is essentially, not exactly, but more or less the plot of your novel. This is the plot, the backstory, all of that fits under this category. So there's that. There's the Enigma Code. And this one, also called the Hermeneutic Code, is basically the puzzles and the questions that are brought up in the story that encourages the reader to dig deeper. Okay? So, there are a lot of ways to do that, and we can talk about that again, like I said. Then you have the character code, or the um, connotative code. This is um, one of the first semiotic codes. This is the things that tell us who the characters are, the setting, things of that nature. So why does it happen, where it happens, so on and so forth. Then you have the cultural code, which is more or less how it draws on the wider culture for the story to make sense. Then you have the symbolic code, which is, have you guessed? This is the symbols that comes out of the story when the elements are seen from a certain angle. It gives meaning or a symbolism to the events that take place. Now, if you studied Barth's work at all, you know that I have 
really oversimplified for sake of this discussion today. But I'm doing that on purpose because, again, we could spend like an entire week on this topic and I really don't want to do that. But in using his breakdowns and how he thought action, enigma, character, and the rest work together to make the care make the story happen to make the events fall to, into place and to make a coherent story in and of themselves if we as writers take the time to build those so that they're pointing not just to the story that we are telling but to the larger wider world in which the story takes place then we might have something. And that's why I started with a discussion of Star Wars, because all throughout A New Hope, it does this. There's a galactic empire that apparently f came after in Republic. And there's apparently senators and princesses and other planets and aliens and all this other stuff that we are constantly being barraged with. That nowadays, you know, when you watch it, it seems quite normal. But if you try to think about it in its original context, that's one of the reasons why I recommended the video by Bob Chipman, um, Movie Bob, on YouTube. And you get to kind of look at it with those fresh eyes, the way that an audience would have back in 1976. You realize how much that one movie is making call-outs to things that really don't play a part in the movie. The Jedi are mentioned, but that's it. The lightsaber is turned on a couple times, but not really used, because, of course, in the end, Luke pilots an X-Wing to destroy the Death Star. He doesn't chop it down with his laser sword. We have all of these hints and clues of a wider world, of a bigger world, of a world that has a history and a meaning outside of the text that we are currently exploring, that we can infer things into. Oh, you called them Jedi Knights. Well, I know what a knight is, so the Jedi must have some kind of code of conduct that they follow. They're possibly a religious order, because a lot of knights were also monastic orders, but not all of them. So they may have been governmental. Um, so what else? They used laser swords, which means they had to have some ability to mitigate blasters because we live in a world where there are blasters and ray guns. And if they used laser swords, then I can infer just from the fact that they used them that they either could, as we would later find out, be able to intercept those blaster bolts with them, or had some other means of dealing with incoming fire. Or why would they fight with a laser sword? And I can infer all of that simply from the fact that laser swords exist, and you called them knights. And that's using those cultural cues that we already have in our real world that help us understand how this fictive world exists. 
I don't know much about your empire, but I'm familiar with senates. You know, your uniforms remind me of variant fascists, so I get a sense of your emperor and what he's after and how they treat the alien populace and why all the members of the empire are... Well, let's be honest, at least in that first movie, they're white men, humans. We don't see in that first movie anybody who fits falls outside of that mold as part of the empire. We have no idea what's going on inside of Vader's thing. We don't know how much human there is in there. Oh, wait, they just called the Jedi a religion. So, okay, that means dot dot dot. You see, we can start inferring and filling in dots and building this world in our own head in a way that makes it catchy, in a way that makes us start debating this, that, or the other. Does Vader have to hold his hand like that to choke people? Or can he just choke people and he's doing that theatrically so they know it's him doing it? All these questions start coming up and all these ideas start coming up and they get locked inside your head. And now you have a story that has fixated us and has gotten in there like an earworm for a song. And now we have a story that got caught in our heads and we can see, at least with Star Wars, a little bit of the mechanism by which that happened. Isn't that neat? I don't know, it was something I was thinking about today and I thought I would share. I hope you liked it. It's something that's really been fascinating me for a while because, yeah, as a writer, you always want, you know, people to be into the stories that you write. But as a fan and a writer, it, it never ceases to amaze me why it is some of the stories that get stuck in my head get stuck in my head and what it is that we can do about it. You know, how, why is it all these years later that I still think about Galaxy Quest or space above and beyond. Part of it is that they feel an incomplete. We seem to have gotten these glimpses into these wider worlds that I haven't gotten to go back and visit and see the inside of and really feel like I've explored them. And this is a quality I feel like the most recent um, Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery is lacking because every character that we meet, every element that we encounter seems to be there just to fill their role in the plot. And that's a problem. And now you know why. Maybe. It's just a theory. If you enjoyed this episode and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or the podcast in general, please do so. That helps me out a lot. That tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you've got a dollar, you can throw my way. Down in the show notes, you'll see a link for community support. If you click that, you can join the project at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. That really does help me out a lot, as well as everybody who's been buying my book, Crucify My Love. That helps out a lot, too. It, thank you to everybody. That really means a lot to me. Um, if you don't have the money and 
trust me, I understand that, or you just don't feel like giving right now, that's okay. One, you can listen to Crucify My Love for free. Just go download the Mask of the Gods podcast. It's right there. Um, but also, share the podcasts. Share them. Find other people that you think would like them and help me to grow a community that really loves talking about these things and will make the experience richer for all of us. If you have a question or comment or a topic you'd like to hear, see discussed on the show, um, Twitter is probably the best place to contact me. I'm C.E. Dorset on Twitter. Or you can go to anchor.fm, download the Anchor app, follow Project Shadow, and you'll see a button that says um, voice message. Keep it clean so I can use it on the show, but I really love using those to enrich the content here on the show. Yeah, so much going on. Um, I hope you like the podcasts. I hope you like the books. Um, I've got so much going on right now. Until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.